We're, uh, we started last week, we started a new series called Failing Forward. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's the life of Moses, really. It's, um, we tend to think that, I mean, if, insofar as we're aware of, you know, biblical heroes and whatnot, we tend to think that Old Testament people are these great, like, awesome heroes, or they're incredible. Uh, and it, what's crazy, when you start to read their, their stories and their lives, it turns out, no, they're actually real people, and they actually um, are chock full of, of failure. And uh, Moses is no different. Moses, uh, last week he was just a baby. It wasn't his fault. We were talking about the failures of others and how to, to fail forward. The idea is that, is that you know, God's, God understands that we're human beings. God's working with us as human beings. God recognizes that we're not perfect. God recognizes we will fail. The issue is, are we going to just fail? Or are we going to fail forward? And last week we, we kind of looked at how we fail forward when, when the people around us fail. Especially people in power. People with influence. This week we're going to talk about uh, what, how, how to, to fail forward when we commit the failure of self-reliance. So let's uh, read the text. You're going to see. Uh, you're going to see that Moses definitely fails. Uh, he, he relies on himself a little bit too much. Horribleness follows, uh, but it's it, the, the God's not done with him, and it's not the end of the story. And we'll see uh, how we can draw uh, from that as we go. Let's uh, read together. This is uh, the Common English Bible version. Um, you can check, follow along in the pews if you'd like. Uh, but it says, one day after Moses had become an adult, he was he was a baby last time we saw him. He was uh, living. He went to live with the princess. He's a prince of Egypt, and now he's become an adult. He went out among his people, and he saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked around to make sure no one else was there. Then he killed the Egyptian, hit him in the sands. Just a, a real good criminal, Moses. When Moses went out the next day, he saw two Hebrew men fighting with each other. Moses said to the one who started the fight, Why are you abusing your fellow Hebrew? He replied, Who made you a boss or judge over us? Are you planning to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? It's a good retort. Then Moses was afraid, and he realized, they obviously know what I did. When Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses ran away from Pharaoh and settled down in the land of Midian. One day, Moses was sitting by a well. Now, there was a Midianite priest who had seven daughters. The daughters came to draw water and fill the troughs so that their father's flock could drink. But some shepherds came along and rudely chased them away. Moses got up, rescued the women, and gave their flock water to drink. When they went back home to their father, Reuel, He asked, how were you able to come back home so soon today? They replied, an Egyptian man rescued us from a bunch of shepherds. Afterward, he even helped us draw water to let the flock drink. Rule said to his giant, so where is he? Why did you, I mean, this guy's gold. We need him. Why did you leave this man? Invite him to eat a meal with us. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Moses agreed to come and live with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses as his wife. She gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom. Because he said, I've been an immigrant or alien living in a foreign land. Just for your reference, ger is the, uh, the Hebrew for uh, alien. And so ger meaning uh, alien. Yeah, uh, Moses. Moses commits murder this week. Definitely failing. Uh, let's jump into the text. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's get a little closer here. One day after Moses had become an adult, he went out among his people and he saw their forced labor. 
Uh, the Egyptians have enslaved the Hebrew people. Remember that from last week. Um, but Moses was miraculously saved. He was a little baby. He was in a, a basket in the, in the river. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, came, grabbed him, rescued him, and has now raised him as a prince of Egypt. Uh, he goes out. He, he looks around, makes sure no one else is there. So it's a little bit premeditated. Then he killed the Egyptian, hid him in the sand. Then he has the gall. The next day, he's walking out, and he sees these two uh, slaves fighting. He's like, why, why are you doing? What are you doing? Guys, what? why are you abusing your fellow Hebrew? What's going on here? What's the picture that I think that we're trying to get of Moses here? What, 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 how is the, the narrative telling it, telling it? What's the text indicating that Moses is like? Well, a little background. Uh, we do know that uh, Egypt was the kind of premier uh, cultural and educational hub of the ancient Near East. So uh, in the ancient Near East, this is, you know, before Greece, uh, before Rome, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt is one of the oldest and and, and highest cultural uh, places in the world. And it was known, I think I have a picture here, for uh, especially education. In fact, Egypt was pretty forward-thinking this way. Uh, We expect all children to have an opportunity for education. That was not the case in the ancient world. Although in Egypt, uh, Egyptian children were mostly literate, mostly educated, to say nothing of Egyptian elites, of which Moses was one. Uh, they, the Egyptian elites were next level. They, they had access to all of the information because they were expected to be imperial leaders. Right? So, and, and someone like Moses was ultimately expected to kind of take over and run the country. And you gotta know politics. You gotta know, uh, the situation on the ground. You gotta know economics. You gotta know history. You gotta know philosophy and theology. Moses learned all that stuff. A lot of people learn all that stuff. Moses is really smart. You know who else is smart? Millennials. Did you know that millennials are by far the most educated cohort in American history? There are more, uh, there are more PhDs and masters and college uh, BAs and BSs uh, from people the age 38 down to um, you know, 18 than ever before in American history. This is a picture of some millennials in class. I know this because I teach millennials uh, in grad school. And oftentimes, I feel like I'm a decent lecturer. And you, mostly I feel like there's people who are, they're kind of engaged. They, you know, they're expecting to go into ministry, so they kind of want to learn how to do it. There's always a couple, though, who have everything figured out. And so they spend the whole time in class on their phones, texting and giggling. They, uh, they, they message, they, they surf the internet, they do all the things that millennials do. And then they dress like that guy on the right. That guy's, just, I mean, wow. He, he's a good looking dude, though. I, I, you know, I, I, and I wish that I could dress like in a millennial, but um, I'm overweight, so I can't pull it off the skinny jeans and whatnot. The problem, uh, though, with millennials, this is obviously millennials, millennials hate it when you say this. And I'm a millennial, so don't. The thing is, we're super, super, super educated. And we're really, 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 really dumb. How is that possible? How is it possible that we can have all these degrees and have absolutely no idea how the world works? I have a friend, uh, Drew, 
when uh, we graduated from college, Drew and his girlfriend Rebecca, they were they were they had been educated and they'd gone into school and they had learned all the things they knew and they knew how to fix all of the world's problems and they wanted to be of service and help and they wanted to save people. So they joined Teach for America, did a two year contract down uh, the border of Texas and Mexico, teaching an underprivileged uh, 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 elementary school and junior high school. And after two years of that, Drew was basically suicidal. And I'm not kidding, he was depressed. Because he knew all this stuff. But it turns out that the world's way more complicated than they make it sound in college. In college, it's just like, well, if everyone just shared all their stuff, this guy Marx, he figured it out, then we'd be great. Or if ever the government would just get out of everything and let you know everyone just abide by the laws and do free market capitalism, everything would be great. And it's it's a very simple you know way that this is how the world is. And if you just if everyone just got along and did that, we'd be great. And so we get out of college, we get out in the world, we've learned all this stuff, read all these books, and we're like, let's fix everything, let's save the world. There's a problem. The world. Is filled with people. And people are really, really messy. Interestingly, uh, you know, Moses, his situation is very similar. Like, he, he's probably heard all about uh, the plight of his people. But the thing is, he understands, he gets it. In a modern economy, in Egypt, you need slave labor in order to succeed. It, you know, it's unfortunate that someone's got to be at the bottom, but that's how it works, right? And so he's like, but at least I know that we're providing our slaves three meals a day, and they're being taken care of, and all the justifications that slave owners throughout the history have always said, at least I know that. It's going to be great, right? And so for the very first time in his life, he's probably 18 years old, he leaves the, the, the royal grounds where he's been educated, he's been cloistered, he's been isolated, and for the very first time as an adult, he walks out and sees the real world, and he's like, oh my gosh, you know what? I take it back. Slavery sucks. But, you know, he's, he's got a good heart and he wants to help his people. He wants to save them. He's like, I can fix this. All I got to do is just... The way that the, the, the text kind of depicts Moses is it, the guy has good intentions. He's a smart dude. He's educated, but he's naive. He's ignorant. He doesn't understand the complexities of the world. And so when he's faced with it for the very first time, he totally overreacts. He has no idea how to handle it. He wants good things. He wants to see his people free. He wants to see all the good stuff, but he doesn't know how to do it. And so he does something that is a mess. This first thing you know, she's... The failure of self-reliance begins with ignorance. Moses takes matters into his own hand. He thinks he can handle it. Partially, it begins because he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He's ignorant of the way that the real world works. It's interesting. He's surprised, right, when he sees the two slaves fighting the next day. He's like, whoa, 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 guys, why are you fighting? Because Moses doesn't realize that in order to make slavery work, uh, slave masters pit slaves against each other. And, and force them to go into status games. Force them to oppress each other. Because if they're fighting each other, they don't try to get free. Moses doesn't get that. He's never seen institutional slavery. He's never seen the evil of the world up close. And so when he sees, he's just bewildered. He has no idea. But that doesn't stop him from doing stuff. 
And I think, you know, gut check time, right? I have some questions for us. First question. What do I think I have a handle on that doesn't seem to be working out? I'm just, now follow me here. Here's the problem. The problem is, as we're going to see, the problem with the failure of self-reliance is it's hard to prevent it because it's hard to know that we have it. Okay? It, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know if you're ignorant. Right? So you have to find clues to help you learn that you don't know what you don't know. And one of those is you think, well, I've got this plan. I should be, this should all be working. And yet something seems to be very wrong. If that's the case, things might be more complicated than you're aware of. You might be involved in a situation or an institution that you don't have the full picture of. Number two, what situation may be way more complex than I thought? Man, I, one of the things about growing it's crazy too, because the older you get, the more you look back and you're like, wow, I had no idea. But the thing is, just because you realize you didn't know anything back then doesn't mean you don't know things now. You heard of this Michael Crichton? Michael Crichton, the late author. Michael Crichton, uh, he, he wrote Jurassic Park, so he's a trustworthy source. Michael Crichton... He, he once said this, he said, every time I open the newspaper, this was back b- before the internet, so he had newspapers, when, when, every time I open the newspaper and I read something about the publishing business, he says, I'm shocked that whoever's writing it is so ignorant of everything about the publishing business. Because he's, he's in that, Michael Crichton, he runs the publishing business, bestseller, he knows inside and out, and yet every time reporters report about it, he's like, these people have no idea what they're talking, they they, they're completely unaware of the intricacies of publishing. And then he says, but then what I do, is I turn the page in the newspaper, and I read about, say, foreign affairs, religion, politics, and I assume that these reporters know what they're talking about. What's wrong with that picture? He says, I'm making the wrong assumption. I should be assuming that they're just as ignorant about everything else as they are ignorant about the thing I'm an expert in. Similarly, you know, we have our areas of competency, especially as we grow in professions, grow in relationships, but that doesn't make us professional and expert at everything. In fact, we might be really good at one thing and be completely out of our league in something else. Last question. What good thing am I so passionate about achieving that I might be in over my head? You have to, I mean, you have to stop and you do have to think for a second what it must have been like for Moses to find, you know, he's a young kid, he's entering adulthood, he's expecting to, to save the world, honestly. I mean, he, he, he's clearly been thinking about this a lot because the first thing he does when he leaves, he goes and he sees his own people. And what must it have been like to just be confronted by the actual horror of what's going on? And obviously, I mean, uh, certainly not condoning murder, but you can understand at some level how that righteous indignation must have welled up where he's like, this is horrible. This is so unjust. This cannot be right. 
And even though he didn't know what he was doing, he, he, he had to do something. Because these are his people. And they needed him. I think similarly in our lives, you know, there's things where we, we get really, you know, pumped up about. And rightly so. Like our, our desire for justice or our desire for uh, joy or our desire to see our kids do well. Our desire to, all those things that, that you know, those are good things. And yet, they, depending on how we handle them, we can, we can jump into things and, and be in, in situations where we just don't know what we're doing. So Moses, he, uh, he sees one of his own people being, uh, being uh, attacked. And so he, he does something that's, uh, well, he's killing the Egyptian. That's really weird for us because we're not in a super violent culture. But in the ancient world, killings happen quite a bit. He knows this is wrong, but he does it anyway because he's like he's looking around making sure no one can see him. Criminal, criminal mastermind. Uh, he, 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 he does it because he's, he sees himself as some kind of like, you know, savior, right? He's like, I'm going to help my people. And it's interesting, the Hebrew there, uh, when the next day he goes and he says to the one who started the fight. The Hebrew there is, is just the Hebrew word for criminal, right? He, he says to the criminal, uh, indicating that Moses has made a judgment about who's guilty and who's not. Moses thinks he's the boss of the Hebrews. He thinks, hey, I'm prince of Egypt. I'm going to be the one who, I, I am the one who's going to help you guys out. And they immediately intuit this. They're like, hey, who made you boss or judge? Who do you think you are, man? Like, they're looking at this guy and they're like, you have no idea what our lives are like. Why would we follow you? Like, you're, you're, you're gonna get in trouble for murder. Like, you're definitely not the person who's gonna run the show here. <laughs> I have a picture of uh, India, British colonial India. British colonial India, a very interesting thing happened. Um, so when the, the, the British came in, they colonized, and uh, they were intent on bringing civilization to the savages, right? That's kind of the way that Western colonialism worked. Uh, and so they kind of put in place all sort of British types of, of governance and, and uh, ways of doing economy and stuff like that, going to fix everything for, uh, for the ignorant savages. And, uh, they, and they had this great solution to a really interesting problem. Uh, in Delhi, there was a uh, just a whole bunch of Indian cobras running around the streets, biting people and killing them. Uh, yeah, it's like like Indiana Jones, right? Like, oh my gosh! And so the Brits came in and they're like, <laughs> "People, you can't have a first world economy with a bunch of cobras running around murdering you." Okay, so we need to fix this problem. And the Brits, they'd had problems similar to this in England, and they knew what to do because they were, you know, at the top, they're the smartest, they know what they're the best. And so they're like, hey, here's what we're going to do. The governor of, uh, of Delhi says, I'm gonna, he put a bounty on cobras, a, a pretty generous bounty, so that anyone who killed a cobra and brought the cobra to him would get paid. And like overnight, the cobras disappeared. Like just gone. But his consular came up to him and was like, bro, have you noticed, like, all the cobras are gone, right? But I am paying out, like, four times as many bounties as I was even when we started this thing. Do you see any snakes? He's like, no, we cleaned it out. Well, then how are these people finding these snakes and, and bringing them? He's like, I don't know, maybe they're, uh, maybe they're going out into the country? 
what the people did is they uh, brought Indian cobras into their homes and bred them. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they were in poverty, and so they were like, wait, you're just going to throw money at us if we have cobras? You got it, brother. And they'd actually created this huge underground uh, black, black market economy for cobras. And cobras were now becoming like the, the most valuable thing in Delhi. And so the, the Brits are like, oh, gosh, this never would have happened in England. You know. In England, people respect the government. They would never try to cheat us this way. Yeah, well, in England, you know, they didn't, weren't being ruled by somebody that wasn't them. So you, maybe it's not exactly the same, but whatever. So the governor is like, that's it. This, I, I wash my hands of this. Bounty canceled. More cobras in Delhi than there'd ever been before. <laughs> True fact, called the cobra effects. A German economist coined that term, the cobra effect. And what happens is, is when you have somebody who's ignorant, who doesn't know the situation on the ground, and they're arrogant and think they know how to fix a problem, they'll do what they think this is going to work, and what they do is they end up causing way more problems than they would have if they'd done nothing at all. Sound familiar? Moses is like, well, I have no idea what it's like to be a slave, but hey, I'm educated. What could go wrong? Goes in, kills a guy. Goes and says, hey, I'm your leader. Welcome me. You're welcome, friends. Everything falls apart. Next thing he knows, he's off to Midian. Moses' problem is not just that he was ignorant. It's the next thing in your note sheets. The problem is that the failure of self-reliance uh, gets amplified by arrogance. Ignorance and arrogance often go hand in hand. People who don't know what they're doing tend to have a very bad understanding of what they're actually capable of. But that's what amplifies the problem. So what happens? Um, back to the text. Right here. When Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses ran away. Do you notice all this language, uh, the, the, the hiding language, right? At the very beginning, uh, he killed the Egyptian, hid him in the sand, right? Remember, he's looking around to see if he can, you know, get away with it. Later, uh, Pharaoh hears about it. Moses runs away, right? Like I said, Midian's about 290 miles away. When, in, in time when you travel by foot, that's really, really far. But it was the, the closest place that wasn't controlled by Egypt. Uh, presumably what this means is that Pharaoh put a bounty on Moses' head. And uh, anywhere that was Egypt-controlled, he would have been turned in. So he runs. He's hiding. He's trying to, like, cover up all the things that he made go wrong. You guys know Sergio Zyman? Do have a picture of Sergio? Sergio Zyman is a genius. In uh, 1982 to 1984, he uh, engineered the introduction of Diet Coke to uh, America. He was a marketing genius. No one thought that a diet beverage could possibly come close to selling as much as like a, a regular beverage, let alone the idea that it might outsell it. But this guy pulled it off. And I don't know what the deal is with Diet Coke, but it is weirdly addicting. Like, cause I, the first, when I was a kid and I drank, I was like, oh, this is not great. Real Coke's way better. Uh, and I would watch my dad just like, you know, pound those things. 
And I was like, I don't get it. And then somewhere like right around 31 or 32, I tried Diet Coke. I was like, oh, no calories? Whoo, you're tickling the belly. Thanks, Sergio. Sergio was uh, on a high. He was a marketing genius. And so uh, Coca-Cola had another project that they wanted to hand to him. Uh, and so he was responsible for the rollout of uh, the, the world's greatest beverage, New Coke, in 1985. Yeah, Sergio, he did that. Um, so the, the, here's the deal. Sergio's not a dumb dude. Uh, for those of you who don't know, 1985, New Coke came out and was uh, generally considered to be like the greatest corporate failure of all time. Uh, what Coke had done was they'd been losing market share to Pepsi for many years. And so behind the scenes, starting in like 1983, they'd gone and they'd come up with a new formula to replace the 99-year-old Coca-Cola classic formula. And they'd actually tested it, and, and all of their testing indicated that uh, it was going to be, it was more popular. People liked it, probably because it was a little bit sweeter, um, more like Pepsi. And so they knew, based on testing and science, that they had a winner here. The question was, how do you roll this thing out and make it, you know, so that everyone buys in? Right? Well, they turned to their guy, Sergio, Sergio Zyman, Harvard educated, Mexican, uh, grew up Mexican Jewish businessman, knows everything about everything. He's got it all figured out. And so he's like, he's like, okay, what we're gonna do is, we're gonna hype this thing. We're gonna hype the heck out of it. But what we're gonna hype is a transition from old Coke to new Coke. This is going to be about a crossover. What we're going to do is the day new Coke comes on the market, old Coke is going to disappear. And we're going to tell people to move over from this thing to that thing. And that transition is going to be the centerpiece of our marketing campaign. Like, Sergio, and this is true, Coca-Cola Corporate, when you read the stories about this, they're like, Sergio, this is crazy. We can't stop selling Coke. He's like, oh, yes, you can. They're like, are you sure? He's like, hey, who did Diet Coke? This guy. They're like, okay. They did not plan on Gay Mullins. Where is he? Where's Gay Mullins? There he is. He's on the right there. Gay Mullins uh, was a retired uh, real estate broker. And when New Coke came out, he flipped his lid. This guy loved Coke. He did. He was, he was a Coke fanatic. He had Coke memorabilia. He'd gone all over the world and tried Coke in every different country. He had Coke souvenirs, everything. So this guy spends $100,000 of his own money to organize campaigns and protests against new Coke. Yeah. So you see that sign? Isn't that great? This is America, right? Like, you know, there's people starving all over the world. The Americans are like, our children will never know refreshment. Do it for the children. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's, the, the the problem here is that is that Coke. It turns out people um, are very complicated, and they actually just love Coke. There's there's a small segment of the, of the population that's our Coke fans, and they're passionate about it. It's like those people that go to Disneyland and they have all the Disney pins, and they're part of a Disney gang. Have you seen those people? They're weird, right? <laughs> But, but that's their thing. They're Disney people. And you don't get in their way, right? Well, this guy was a Coke person. There were lots of people like him. He even put together a nonprofit, the Old Time Soda Drinkers, to protest. 
What was Sergio's problem? He was ignorant. He didn't realize that there were these people out there who just love Coke. And he was arrogant. He said, you drink what I tell you to drink. And then when it all crashed and burned, he tried to duck out. (laughs) But the Coca-Cola executives just threw him right under the bus. They were like, this is all Sergio's fault. He's fired, by the way. We made a terrible mistake. 77 days after New Coke was introduced, it was trashed entirely, and Coca-Cola Classic came back, and everyone in the world poured their scorn and their hatred on Sergio Zyman. That's the thing, when you, uh, when you fail based on self-reliance, when you're the guy, or you're the lady, when you're the one, right? When it all comes down to you, and you think you have the plan, you think you can get it done, and then you actually try to execute, and you fall on your face, guess what? You can't hide. You can't hide from those kinds of failures. There's lots of failures where it's like, oh, we're all in this together. But when you're combining ignorance and arrogance, just as Moses did, there's no question about who's responsible, and you're in trouble. So what happened? It's interesting. The way, the way that the, the story is told, it's, it's parallel, right? So at the very beginning, Moses is going to save his people. He's Moses the Savior. He's going to fix everything. He's going to get rid of slavery. He's going to use his connections with the palace to help the people out. He's shocked when they don't want his help. He makes some terrible choices about how to help them. Hey, check it out. He gets another chance. Uh, he's been living in Midian a long uh, ways away. He's sitting at a well. Uh, some ladies come up to feed their flocks. Uh, some shepherds come along and kind of cut in line because they're stronger. Moses got up, rescued the women, and gave their flock water to drink. Good job, Moses. He's done it. He's white knighted. And so what does he do? He charges. He kicks the door down. He's like, rule. It's me, Papa Moshe. I took care of your daughters. I'm ready for my reward. No. Notice, notice that Moses actually just like, he disappears. He like gets up. He's like, hey, shepherds, get out of here. Ladies, do your thing. I'll help you. You're welcome. See you later. It's been nice meeting you. They get home. Rules like, what? Find this knight, this, this knight in shining armor. Get him back. This guy's awesome. Who's doing all the action here? Is it Moses being like, hey? Or is it other people exalting Moses? Right? All Mo- Moses gets an invite. He's like, okay. And then Rule's like, why don't you live here? He's like, all right. He's like, hey, would you like a wife? He's like, I sure would. He's like, want children? Uh-huh. Right? And notice who's doing the action here. It's no longer Moses being the one who's like, eh. I'm fronting. I'm going to be the, the savior. I'm going to be awesome. He does what's right, but he doesn't insert himself into everything. He's almost passive in the way that everything happens. He's like sitting at the well. He's watching. He's like, gosh, it seems really wrong for those guys to harass those women. I, you know what? I should do something. I mean, that's where he, he's gone from your savior has arrived, Hebrews, to I'm glad I could help. And suddenly, instead of someone wanting to kill him, and the people that he's saving being like, who are you? He's exalted to a place where he's the guy. 
And he had nothing to do with it. In fact, I mean, I, I think that by that, that Ger, Gershom, um, meaning like alien son, immigrant son, um, I, I really think that, that what's going on here is that Moses has gone through this, like, this total transformation where he used to see himself as prince of Egypt, savior of the Hebrews, and now he sees himself as poor alien living in an alien land. And it's not, it's, not, it's not humility. I mean, humility is part of it. He has gone to a place that's humble. But it's more than that. It's, it's that he has stopped trying to get stuff for himself. He stopped trying to be the man. Next thing in your note sheet says that, uh, yeah, I don't want don't don't to do Galahad. Moses fails forward by trading self-reliance for self-forgetfulness. He stumbled, he fell, but he learned his lesson. He learned a really important lesson. And so here's this guy now who went from prince of Egypt to son-in-law of rule, father of Gershon, husband of Zipporah. And Exodus 2 ends like this. A long time passed and the Egyptian king died. The Israelites were still groaning because of their hard work. They cried out, and their cry to be rescued from the hard work rose up to God. God heard their cry of grief and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked at the Israelites, and he understood their plight. Do you notice what was missing the whole time? God. I'm here to rescue you, friends. You're welcome. But in all of his zeal and his ignorance and his arrogance, Moses wasn't acting on God's commands. He was acting on Moses' commands because he saw a problem. He knew he could fix it. He took care of business, and then everything fell apart. And once he's come to this place where he's forgotten himself, we're told that God is ready to act. Right? A long time passes, and, and the way, it, almost the language is almost like God's like looking over, and he notices, he hears these cries, and he looks down um, where it says God understood. It's like God acknowledged it. Um, God like took notice of it. And, 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 and the notion being that, that God has allowed this to go on for a, a long time, but now God's ready to act. God is now allowing himself to be compassionate again and, and to, to desire the freedom and, and, and the joy of his people, to honor the covenant he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's ready to get into action, and hey, guess what? Now he's got a guy who's ready too. Not Moses, prince of Egypt, Savior of the Israelites. But Moses, alien, living in a foreign land. Who's forgotten himself enough that he's ready to be the leader of Israel. Um, maybe there's some people here who really are in the midst of the failure of self-reliance. You really have gone it alone. Uh, you, and... Things haven't gone well. Maybe uh, you're in the midst of a situation where you are doing things on your own. So far, it's like kind of okay, but you don't know. And it, 
I think what Scripture is indicating is, is what God's really looking for is not successful people. God's not looking for winners. God's looking for self-forgetful people. People who aren't all that, but who are willing to do the right thing when the time comes. God does have this incredible plan. He does want Moses to be the savior of his people, but he wants Moses to be the savior on God's terms, not Moses' terms. He wants you to be to fulfill whatever vocation, whatever calling you have, but he wants you to do it on his terms, not your terms. He wants you to be dependent on him rather than dependent on yourself. He wants you to allow his spirit to guide you into all truth rather than living in ignorance. He wants his spirit to empower you to be surrounded by people so that you're living out, not out of arrogance, but out of God's genuine power. And so I think our call today is to check ourselves. Where's our ignorance? Where's our arrogance? And how can we become people who stop thinking about ourselves? How can we be people who forget ourselves? Because when we do, God is ready to use us. Let's pray. Gracious God, um, we just ask that you'll show us in our lives where we are ignorant, where we don't know what we're doing, places where we're arrogant, where we're acting in ways that just aren't working, where we're doing things and we think we know best, but we really clearly don't because things aren't working out the way they ought. God, I pray that we'll be people who transform from self-reliant to self-forgetful and that you, in that transformation, in that humbling, in that um, opening up to your ways and and your power, that that you'll begin to use us to really make us do those things you've called us to do and and really see uh, the joy and the benefit and the fruit of labor that's done for you and not for us. A blessing, God, too, on every person here who's um, reeling because of the failure of self-reliance. They're just exposed and, and humiliated. God, let them know that, that you're not looking for the perfect people, not looking for winners, that you're ready to, to help them fail forward, that this is not a time of endings, but it's a time of beginnings. In all, God, we uh, trust you because you're the one who gave everything for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.